Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. Today's podcast comes from our Sunday Forum series, To Give You a Future and a Hope, led by Pastor Mark Gravrock. If you would like to view and download the slides made to accompany this forum, there is a link available in the episode description. And now, here's Pastor Mark. Though the earth shall change, though the mountains tremble, though the waters rage, you, God, are here. Though the nations war, though the peoples battle, though the empire falters, we will not fear. Though the earth shall change, though the mountains tremble, though the waters rage, you, God, are here. Though the nations war, though the peoples battle, though the empire falters, we will not fear. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are our refuge and strength. And in the midst of everything, by your promise, we know you are here in our midst. What you're up to, we don't always know. But we trust you, and we give ourselves to you. Be with us now, Holy Spirit. Guide our thinking. Guide our wrestling today over your scriptures. And open us to what you're up to. In Jesus' name we pray. If you weren't here with us last week, or if you were and you've totally forgotten what we're doing, uh, this is a five-week series um, looking at, uh, given, given the, the, the struggles that our world is uh, facing, uh, particularly I'm thinking about our climate struggle, I'm thinking about our divisions and our political uh, anger toward one another and our splits that way. I'm thinking about the violence that's rampant in our world and the warfare that we've been looking at. Uh, given all of that, besides the junk that we go through personally in our lives, what realistic hope does the Bible offer us? Uh, what, why doesn't God just bail us out of all this? Why doesn't God fix it? That's kind of the basic question, okay? Why doesn't God fix this? So we're hopping and skipping and jumping through the whole Bible in five sessions, which means we'll cover everything and answer every question you ever had. <laughs> Not. Okay. Last week, we were looking particularly at the flood story, and I'm going to add a couple additions to that. Where we're going to be going is today into the prophets, next week into the book of Job especially, the week after that into Jesus and the Gospels, and the last week... Uh, trying to wrap it all up together, um, which means we'll cover some stuff and we're going to leave a lot of bristling questions all over the place. That's the nature of the beast. So last week, we were looking particularly at the end of the flood story. And whatever you think of the middle of the flood story, and what kind of a god is this that would do such a thing, and how that story works or doesn't work, when you get to the end, to chapter 9, there are two, if you got nothing else from last week, I hope you got two things out of it. First is that in those first seven verses of chapter 9, God commits God's self to this now utterly broken, violent world. 
And you can, as you read those verses, you can hear God's anguish, God's pain, as God now says to the human race, okay, it didn't work to try to flush all of this out. This is now a permanently broken and violent world. But I commit myself to you. I'm going, th I'm going to go through it with you all the way to the end, knowing that it's going to remain violent and going to remain filled with pain. And so I'll find a way to, to walk with it through you and to help you navigate this thing. So God commits himself to this broken world. Then verses 12 and 10 to 17, at the end of that, you get the, the promise with the rainbow, with God's bow hung up in the sky as an emblem that God now renounces violence as a way to handle this, handle this broken earth. Now, I know this is messy stuff throughout Scripture. You can point to a dozen passages where it didn't look like God renounced violence. Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues, on and on. Um, and so all of those things stand in tension together in the Bible. But with, at least with this passage, you get God marking off a new course and saying to us, I think if nothing else, the flood story says pretty directly that a, that a, a heavy-handed, hard-fisted, approach to solving the earth's problem, the earth's violence, does not work. And God turns his back on that. I'm going to find a different way. The two pieces that we didn't get to at the end, and I don't need to go into them in great detail, are Abraham and Sarah. And it's interesting that today we have the covenant of Abraham and Sarah in, in, in our scripture this morning. And the Exodus story with Moses. So as you're probably well aware, you've got those first 11 chapters of Genesis that are kind of prehistory with all of those stories that set up the situation on earth. And then beginning in chapter 12, God calls one human being and his partner, so Abram and Sarah, go from your land, your kindred, your everything that you've known, go to the land that I will show you, I will bless you, I will give you a great name, I will give you a people, and through you all the peoples of the world will be blessed. You know that passage pretty well, I suspect. I'd like us to think about that, not for a long time, but I'd like us to think about the call of Abraham and Sarah in terms of God's commitment to this broken earth. Now, there's nothing in that passage that says, okay, I'm calling Abraham and Sarah as a step toward my new commitment to this broken earth. But in context, that's what we get. Why does God call one couple? Why would God single out one couple, one family, then one nation to begin some sort of a project if this is not, in part, at least in part, God's response to this broken, violent earth and God's commitment to dealing with it? So the very call of Abraham and Sarah in this context is, um, is a piece of what God's up to in this broken world. You can move on then to Exodus 2 and 3, where God calls Moses. Moses, I have seen what's happening to my people. I have heard their cries. I know their sufferings firsthand. And now I'm calling you. I'm sending you to Egypt to set my people free. There's a whole story in that one too. But then there's the question, why would God carve out, aside from the fact that God made promises to Abraham and Sarah, why would God carve out one people, carve them out of their slavery from Egypt, create them as a new kind of people? For what? What's the purpose? 
just so that this one people can enjoy a new freedom? Or is there more to it than that? I'd like us to think about the call of the, the, the freeing of Israel from Egypt in the light of God's commitment to this broken earth. Whatever else God is doing, the call of Abraham and Sarah and the creation of this people and the setting them free from Egypt is a piece of God's response to a broken, violent world. Israel and we have not handled that all that well, but that's part of the story. If nothing else, God calls us, God calls Abraham and Sarah, God calls Israel to be a piece of what God is about in this world. Uh, we'll add one other piece that was also there in, in, the, uh, in last week that we didn't get to. Is Israel the only people God's done that with? There's an interesting passage in Amos chapter 9, I think it is, where God says, Did I not call Israel out of Egypt? And did I not call the Arameans out of Kir? And did I not call the Philistines from Kaftor? God apparently has God's fingers in several pies. There may be more going on in the world than just what's happening with Israel, and all we get is a little hint like that, that God may have other secrets going on, other projects going on in the world to do the same thing. Today we're going to move into the prophets. Before we do, any questions, comments, thoughts from, from this or from last time? That was, it is on last week's handout, Amos 9, verse 7. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's a peculiar passage. Kind of like, Israel, I've done this for you, and not just you. Is there a particular reason in Two sentences or less for Canaan? <laughs> Two sentences or less for? Canaan. Why does Canaan. God say to Abraham, Canaan, go there? Because there are already people there. Is there something that's calling? <laughs> I can do it in fewer than two sentences. I don't know. <laughs> Let me add a second sentence. And that's that there's, there's all kinds of controversy and biblical study around that whole what's Canaan all about, what's Israel all about, who are these nasty Canaanite folks. Um, there are some scholars who think that Israel is, is at least in part out, out of Canaanite roots. That it, there maybe one group came out of Egypt and other, others came out of Canaanite roots and became part of this Israel movement. Um, there's, there's just a lot of conversation in biblical studies around that question. But the first answer is actually the correct one. I don't know. Okay. We're moving into the prophets. Uh, that picture, by the way, I forget the artist's name right now. I can see it here. Victor Vaznetsov, 1887. That's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, I thought I might as well throw a really violent picture out there right to start with. We're moving into the prophets uh, for a number of reasons. 
Um, one of them is is that as you know, as as I was teaching this up at Holden, teaching, leading a group who all were contributing to the teaching up at Holden last fall. Um, one of the next major pieces of the story is how God starts to work with through the prophets. There's something new that takes place with the prophets, and part of that is I wanted to I wanted to lift up a couple of prophetic passages where the earth itself, the created order itself, is affected by our brokenness. And the prophets make that clear without really defining how it works. I want to lift that up. Part of it, too, is that, you know, as we think about, well, God, what are you doing with our brokenness? What are you doing with our violence? What, how are you going to fix this? One of, the, one of the ways that we tend to like to go to is we want God to come in and whomp our enemies. I do. I, when I think about particular enemies, God, why don't you step in and bring judgment to that situation? Well, it's always messier than that, isn't it? And the prophetic, the whole prophetic message gets into that mess and then moves us toward apocalyptic language. Especially in times like ours, apocalyptic. The book of Revelation, end times disasters and whatever else. That's why I put that picture up. There's something attractive about that. God, are you going to finally fix this once and for all? Can the will of God of the cross do such a thing? Okay, that's part of why we're moving into this. Now, as I remember from up at Holden uh, last fall, when we actually got to this day, we didn't stick to the script much at all. The conversation of the group ended up going all over the place in interesting directions, and I can't replicate it and remember where it was. So there's all sort of stuff that you have on your handout that we never got to, and that's okay. If we don't today either, I don't mind. We'll see where the conversation goes. So here is the, the statement for today. The prophets mark a new advance in how God gets involved in a broken world. What does a day of Yahweh, a day of the Lord, look like? Are we sure we want it? How does God move us to truth and to hope? On your sheet there you've got um, something that I put on the slides, that, that piece about perception of God's activity. There are messy tangly issues throughout all of this, and each one could stand to be a whole hour together all just on that one piece alone, because there's so much in it. Um, but I wanted to raise the question of our perception of God's activity. Does God step in and do stuff? Now, there's a miracle throughout the Bible. Whenever there's miracle happening, there's testimony to God stepping in and doing stuff. As you read the Bible, is God one who comes in and whomps the earth and throws down judgments and he hurls down thunderbolts like Zeus might or whatever? Well, it's kind of, as you, as, at the beginning of the Bible, the, more, uh, the earlier you are in the Bible, the more the language is that God steps in and does things. God's victorious hand causes this or causes that. So you've got the flood story. You've got the um, Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got the plagues in Egypt. But the farther along you get in the story of Scripture, the less and less God seems to do things directly. God seems to act through other means, through natural calamities, through human warfare. Um, the earth and its beings are doing stuff 
And the prophets are saying, God's in there somewhere, involved in that. But actually, if you read through most of Scripture, you'll find very few places where God throws down any thunderbolts, where God steps in and does the kind of thing that we, that we think a good apocalyptic God ought to do. Um, and part of that is, I, part of that's the story of Scripture. Part of that is, is our own human growth in perceiving the powers around us. Early on in our human history, any power that astounds us has got to be a god, right? It's got to be some agency out, out there. And God plays with that. But just as our own understanding grows, so does scripture and moves away from that picture. I remember being impressed with, in some of the, the prophets, and I don't know which one, um, when God says, you won't turn away from evil. I keep telling you and this and that and the other thing but then he just gives up and says that's what you want go for it and it's not so much that he's stepping in but that he's allowing the consequences to play out I think that's right on that an awful lot of what we hear in scripture about God's judgment or about God's wrath is God allowing the consequences to play out yeah. I think that's a healthy way to see a great deal of it. Now again, that with everything else is going to be uneven. You'll find plenty of passages that says God did this. And others that says that give more of the sense that God steps back and allows it. Either way, God's not off the hook. Either way, we've still got the question, God, how are you going to fix this thing? So a little background of the prophets. Um, I think I already said that part. From Abraham and Sarah, and then from Moses carving out Egypt, Israel from Egypt, you've got God creating a new kind of community that's meant to be different from the power-driven power and power-hungry communities on earth. Something different from Egypt. So Israel, Israel's far from perfect, but if you read those, the laws of those of, in, the, in the Pentateuch and what kind of a community God is designing, as imperfect as it is, you can see there's a, a pretty constant uh, theme throughout those laws that God is setting up a community where people care for one another, where people are on the same footing before God, where power is not allowed to grow too high, where wealth is not allowed to grow too high but where there's a mutuality and a different kind of community being shaped. That seems to be God's vision, Moses' vision, for those first centuries. And Israel kind of lived it out, not perfectly by any means. And then came the day when uh, the problems around us got to be too big. The Philistines were too strong. They had iron weapons. We have only bronze. And they were they're whomping us in battle every other day. And so what do we need? We need a king. We need a king like the other nations to gather us together in battle and lead us into victory. And if you read the Bible, there are chapters that are pro-king, and there are chapters that are quite anti-king, side by side with each other. If you read the opening of 1 Samuel, for example. The anti-king part is, goes something like this. Samuel brings the issue to God. God, they want a king. 
Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So go, if they really want a king, give them what they ask for, but warn them, this is what's going to happen. If you decide to go down the route of, of kings, you are going to get this top-down thing developing all over again. You're going to get Egypt happening all over again. That's the warning. And the people say, nope, we need a king, thanks. And God says, okay, I'll give you the best I can find. First Saul, then David. By the time you get to Solomon, the full Egyptian power-heavy thing has happened all over again. So the, the, the special kind of community that God created has been undone and turned over. Well, I think it's interesting that it's right at the moment that kings arise that prophets also arise. I don't think that's an accident. The Bible doesn't say it in so many words, but the timing is way too coincidental. And so God, it appears that God raises up the institution of prophecy at the same time as the institution of monarchy arises as a kind of check and balance on that power. So first of all, you've got Samuel, the first of the prophets, last of the judges, and Samuel will support the king as long as the king's on the right track. And when the king's on the wrong track, Samuel goes and anoints somebody else instead. That's called treason in most circles. But <laughs> Nathan is probably the most famous example that way. Nathan, David's prophet. As long as David's on the right track, Nathan is supporting him with promises from God, with support, with direction. But when David abuses his power, Nathan walks straight into the king, tells this story and says, you are the man. You are the one who's, who's violated. And so the prophets will support this monarchy as long as it's on the right track. And when it's not, brings a word of judgment. I don't think it's any accident that happens at the same time. I put up here a couple of names, Abraham Heschel and Walter Brueggemann. Abraham Heschel, uh, a Jewish writer from back in the 1960s, um, a, a Jewish scholar heavily involved in the civil rights movement, wonderful man. He is, uh, he's written the best book ever, I think, on the prophets. It's called The Prophets. <laughs> uh, if you ever do want to read Abraham Heschel's book on the prophets, just be aware, he tends to write in circles. So if you like to read stuff that goes in circles, you'll be fine. If you don't, you're going to be frustrated like crazy. But he's got some wonderful, wonderful stuff. And for me, one of the, one of the best gifts that Abraham Heschel gave us was that the insight that, God, that the prophets are invited into God's own pathos. The prophets are invited to experience God's own pain, God's own passion. And that's why when they speak, uh, as Heschel will say, they, they sound like they're speaking you know, two octaves too high, or what most of us would say, hey, come on, it's not that serious. And, and Heschel would say, the prophets are saying, no, God's heart says it is serious. What's going on in this community is that serious. So the prophets experience God's own pain, God's own passion, God's own pathos. And if you haven't noticed, that's a step on the way toward the incarnation, isn't it? that Jesus himself will be the living, breathing, walking experience of God's passion. Um, the prophets are on the way toward that. Walter Brueggemann, um, an Old Testament theologian that sounds so Lutheran that most people think he is Lutheran, but he's not. Uh, he's he's got to be in his 90s now. He hasn't died quite yet. A prolific scholar. 
his, I think, his most famous book, The Prophetic Imagination. He lays out a thesis of what the prophets are all about. Uh, if you read Brueggemann, uh, please be aware he invents his own vocabulary. Uh, but once he's invented it and defined each piece, he uses those over and over again, so you can finally get used to what in the world he's talking about. But it's not an easy read. But his basic thesis throughout the whole book is that the prophets are called with, to, for two basic functions. One is prophetic criticizing, by which he doesn't mean carping or saying bad, bad, bad. The criticizing is more truth-telling, laying bare the truth of what's going on, pointing out that the emperor has no clothes, uh, showing what's actually happening in society, and bringing the, bringing the grief to voice of what's happening in the world. And then prophetic energizing, that's the promise side of the prophets, that the prophets are given a God's vision of what's possible out there, beyond what seems possible to us now. Um, good stuff. That's enough introduction to the prophets. Amos. Amos is the first of what we call the writing prophets. I put that in quotes because we don't know whether he wrote or not, but somebody did. Somebody wrote down his prophecies and collected them. So his is the first book where we have a collection of his prophecies, of his sayings. Uh, Amos is a really interesting character. I, we could spend a whole class on Amos. That would be really fun. Uh, the prophet in the, the if you're familiar with the story of the kingdoms, after Solomon, the kingdom broke into two pieces, the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. These two prophets, Amos and Hosea, are prophets for the last quarter century of the northern kingdom's existence. And the two of them together uh, are lifting up the two great prophetic themes. Amos calling constantly for justice for the vulnerable, and Hosea calling for faithfulness toward God. Those two themes are run throughout all the prophets after that. Amos 5. Amos 5, verse 18. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Interpret, please. First of all, are people wanting the day of the Lord? Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> now, we haven't defined what the day of the Lord is yet. But apparently, somebody's wanting it. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. In general, the day of the Lord would be any event, any day when God intervenes. And the presumption, if you're desiring the day of the Lord, what are you presuming it's going to be like? Peaceful. Good stuff? Peaceful. Peaceful. Going to get everyone else. Going to get everyone else. Yeah. One of our, those enemies that are coming after us, God's going to put them down and God's going to save us. Yeah. Yeah, that's the day of the Lord. That's the expectation. That's what's going on before this. You can read that in that one line. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. What does that tell you so far? Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Well, is it also saying that in times like this, when it isn't easy and isn't 
things aren't going the way we want them to be, God's still here. God is in control. God is still here. God is still in control. It's, it's, even his, it's his day. It's his day. We don't like it. It's not what we wanted, but he's still in control. Is it kind of a yeah. backwards way of saying, I got this? It is a backwards way of saying, I got this. And it's a way of saying, I got this, and it may not be how you want it to be. So, how does this, how is this in relation to us praying during the worship service, come Lord Jesus? How does this relate to our praying in worship, come Lord Jesus? You know the bumper stickers that go along with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Jesus is coming and he's really pissed, or other, <laughs> other versions of that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's exactly right. We're praying for Jesus coming. We're praying for the intervention of God. Is that going to be what we think it is? Or are we praying for Jesus to come back and the end of time on earth? Not to just fix the current. Are we? Are we? Because I mean, Christianity is a straight line, mm -hmm. and we believe when Jesus comes again, it'll be done. Yep. Our travails will be over. So, aren't we praying for the travails of all to be over? Is that what we're praying for? The wrap up of everything and the finishing of all of this Mess. painful story. Mm -hmm. On one level, short. Sure. Um, one of the interesting things is that Jesus keeps bringing the end into the middle of things. Instead of just saying, yeah, it's all going to be fixed at the end, he keeps bringing the kingdom into now. There was, I'm remembering when I was, I think, a freshman or a sophomore in college, I began to hear, back at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, I began to hear, back where my home was in Southern California, that there was this Jesus movement thing going on. And as this wise freshman or sophomore Christian, I decided I was going to go home and check that out in the summertime. So I did. I went to a lot of the coffee houses, and, and I came back with, to my friends with a report that, yeah, this is legitimate. This is on the up and up, and good stuff with my wisdom at age 19, or whatever that was. Um, but I also taped, um, audio taped, on a little cassette, a number of the songs that came out of that movement. Some of them were wonderful, others of them a little more questionable. Um, one of them had this chorus that said, "This world could be a drag if I had, if I thought I had to stay, but I don't." <laughs> this world could be a drag if I thought I had to stay, but I don't. Jesus is going to pull me out of here. Um, there is something about. There's something right about our longing for the end and for the wrap-up of everything. And there's something escapist about our longing for the end and the wrap-up of everything. That uh, God pull us out of here. Fix this once and for all. Take us home. Take us to the new creation. I'm glad the new creation is there waiting. <laughs> that those promises are there. Do you, do you feel the tension in that? Why do you want the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. I love this part. It's as if someone fled from a lion and ran into a bear. <laughs> or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. 
That's what the day of the Lord is like. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? <coughs> Pardon me. Um, it's not necessarily what you think. If, God, if you're asking God to intervene, it's not necessarily what you think it's going to be. Now, the very next verses show us why Amos sees that's the case. And this gets us into the most famous passage of all of Amos. I hate, I despise your festivals, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and great offerings, I will not accept them. The offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs, whether it's the 830 version or the 945 version. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. God does not want our worship. Why? God's sick of our worship. That's the famous verse. Instead, let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Why is the day of the Lord not what you think it is? Because in your community, the vulnerable, the poor, those at the bottom, are being shafted on a daily basis. And you don't notice and you don't care. The day of the Lord attends to that. The day of the Lord attends to those who are being crushed. Thoughts? Comments? So I wonder in relation to this prophet Amos, millions of people pray all the time and all different faith forms. Come Lord Jesus is what's happening to us the day of the Lord according to this. Is what's currently happening to us the day of the Lord. We're praying for it and is that what we're is God letting the consequences play out? And so visiting that language of visiting the iniquity, which means attending to it, letting it play out. Good question. Okay. A couple of passages about the prophets and the planet. So here we move now to the other um, 8th century northern prophet, which is the prophet Hosea. If you know Hosea at all, you may know that it, it, starts, out with, it starts out with his broken family life. Um, here, Hosea's own marriage and family life has to be the vehicle for God's own broken-hearted love. So if you ever want to be a prophet, um, Better check and see what you're signing up for first. So here, Hosea's own life embodies God's brokenness and God's pain. That's the first three chapters. Then once you get to chapter four, the message starts. And it's an interesting beginning to the message. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, for the Lord has an indictment, a lawsuit. God is taking God's people to court. God has a lawsuit against God's people, against the inhabitants of the land. And here's the basic charge. There is no faithfulness or loyalty, no knowledge of God in the land. Those are loaded terms in Hebrew for the faithfulness or loyalty. That's the Hebrew chesed, one of those most wonderful ones where you have to cough up the phlegm through first. And I probably ought not do that today as I'm recovering from this thing. Um, chesed is um, God's, God's committed love. 
it's chesed for whatever the relationship is, you live out the relationship thoroughly and fully. So God's chesed toward us, God's steadfast love toward us, is God's committed grace. Um, what God is asking for from us is chesed in return, a committed love back toward God, a loyalty toward God and toward God's purposes. And, and, God, and Hosea is saying, as I look at Israel, currently there is no chesed, there is no faithful relationship, and no knowledge of God. The term da'ath Elohim, knowledge of God, does not mean head knowledge in the scripture. Knowledge is intimate and participatory. That's why it can be used as a sexual image. Uh, Adam knew his wife, and they should give birth to Cain, whatever. Um, knowledge of God is intimate, experiential, awareness and participation in who God is. That's what God's calling for. Faithful, uh, I'm blanking on the word, faithful relationship back and forth, and um, a knowledge, of, a heart knowledge, an experiential knowledge of who I am, and a desire to live that out. That's the charge. Verse 2 is just evidence. Swearing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery break out, bloodshed follows bloodshed. What does that sound like? Sounds like today. Sounds like today. Yeah, civic life. A civic life. It's also, you know, for, for all that we get in, in clarity in the Ten Commandments, both in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it's very rare in the Bible to actually find somebody ticking them off like this. This is basically that those middle that middle heart of the Ten Commandments. Um, there's the evidence. You are not paying attention at all. But these are only the symptoms. The heart matter is that part. Faithfulness and loyalty and a genuine experiential and committed knowledge of God. Third verse is the interesting one. Somebody read that for us. Therefore the land mourns, and all who live in it languish, together with the wild animals and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea are perishing. Thank you. And that's the end of the passage. What is the result of our unwillingness to live out covenant relationship with God? I mean, there's, there's almost physical evidence of this. If we don't take care of the land, I read someplace that Greece was once a very fertile place. It is not anymore. It is, and the cedars of Lebanon are no more. Are very, the, the forest that used to be in Lebanon is greatly reduced. And desertization comes. If, if we put profit and always our needs before the earth needs, the earth mourns. We see it. It, it. The earth moves on. Could you hear Carolyn? Yeah. Um, that there's just concrete evidence that when we are not attending to and caring for the earth itself, um, it erodes. Um, the loss of the cedars of Lebanon, Greece turning into a no longer fertile country, etc. Uh, that's when we live to exploit, uh, that's the end result. And I think that's, that's clear in, in passages like this. It's not clear that that's what this is talking about. It's not clear that anybody is abusing the land. 
what's going on is abusing one another. And as a result, the land suffers. How does that work? Why does the land suffer when we're abusing each other? Hmm? It's all about me. Yes. It's all about me. And so, if I, if you I, can do, I can do anything I want to because God loves me and your God doesn't love you as much as God loves me. And so, I can do anything I want to. That kind of attitude is just prevalent in our world today. And, and in every religion, in every faith, there's those who read the same Bible um, or other books as we do, but we interpret them totally different. Yep. And, and that causes a lot of pain. It does. I think another thing that we don't think about is we think we own it. It's ours. Yeah. That mine. But I think we forget to be stewards and that we need to hand it on. That we we I mean he talks this comes up that, that it isn't that we're we're put in charge, but the Lord is the one who has control. Right. And so we need to be aware that it's we're gonna be called upon to, to hand it back, to mm -hmm. hand it on. And we forget about that, or as a society, we, we there's always going to be enough trees. There's always going to be new land. We'll just you know move on. If it grows out, we'll just move on to fresh stuff. Yep. And that isn't what the Lord says. It is not. Yep. The intriguing thing for for me about this is that while all of that is true, and for our stewardship, everything else that we're called to for caring for this planet, for tending it and nourishing it, um, all of that is part of this picture. Um, but Hosea isn't drawing attention to any of that. Hosea is seeing some kind of direct effect that our violence toward one another has on the earth. And there's no, he doesn't draw out any mechanism. He doesn't say, well, this is how your adultery or your lying or your bloodshed toward one another affects the created order, but it does. He's declaring that it's all interwoven somehow, and that in ways that Jose himself can't point to, he can't demonstrate it, um, everything is connected and the earth suffers because of our violence toward one another. Uh, all you have to do is look at the news and see the destruction of all of the buildings mm -hmm. in the war zones, and that even if the war ended today, it's going to take many, many decades to build up. That's right. I mean, when I went into East Germany, there's still areas they're still working at cleaning up. And I was born at the end of the war, and I was 79. So, you know, it takes a long, long time mm -hmm. to rebuild what has been destroy. It's all interwoven. Would you take a look please at Jeremiah chapter 4. There's another interesting passage in the prophets. Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah is living in a time when um, uh, the southern kingdom is now going down the tubes. Northern kingdom's long gone. 
the southern kingdom had a brief kind of flourishing where there was some hope of restoration, and then they started right back down the same abusive and greedy uh, po policies that they had before. And now it won't be long before Babylon comes and destroys Ju Judah and Jerusalem. That's on its way. And Jeremiah has to live through the approach of that horror. And that's what so much of Jeremiah's book is about. And again, if you're familiar with Jeremiah and his anguish and his laments and all that, Jeremiah is another one of those clear examples of a prophet who is called to bear God's own anguish. It's, it's Jeremiah's anguish. It's also God's anguish. And you often can't tell who's grieving at any given moment. Is it God or is it Jeremiah? Jeremiah 4 uh, starts in verse 19. Uh, it's clear once you get into verse 20 and 21 that the context is war. That's what's coming is war. Uh, but here's where it starts. Jeremiah, is this Jeremiah's voice or is it God's voice? My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Anguish because Jeremiah can see warfare coming. Verses 20 and 21, disaster overtakes disaster, tents are destroyed, um, the comfort of war are going, all that's going on, but then it shifts. 22, God's, this is now God speaking. <coughs> For my people are foolish, they do not know me. There's that language of God, of, of knowing God again. They are stupid children, they have no understanding, they are skilled in doing evil, but do not know how to do good. There's God's own grief at what's happening. And now, is this God speaking, or is it Jeremiah speaking? I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. Where have you heard that language before? First part of Genesis. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the, of the deep. That language is exactly in Hebrew, the same phrase from Genesis 1. I looked on the earth and it was waste and void. What's that saying? What's happening to creation? It's being uncreated. It's going back to chaos because of human activity. Does that sound like a 21st century passage? I looked to the heavens, and they had no light. Genesis 1, God says, let there be light, and there was light. But now I look to the heavens, and there's no light. Uncreation. Back to chaos. I looked on the mountains, and they were quaking, and the hill, all the hills moved to and fro. It goes on. I looked, and there were... Did I put it there? Yes. There was no one at all. All the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord before God's fierce anger. Um, the topic is warfare, but the imagery is all the undoing of creation. It's all interwoven, it's all part of a whole, back to chaos. Now, we need to pause on that last word. What is God's anger? What is God's wrath? I taught an entire course at, at LBI on God's justice and wrath. Um, we'll encapsulate that in five minutes. But 
<laughs> Likely story. What is God's wrath? It's almost a feeling of despair because he's shown us already yeah. and he's explained it and we just keep doing it. And, and it sounds, I don't know if God can know despair, but I think in these passages, God can. Yeah. I see it as a parent who is deeply disappointed in the in what is happening to one's children. Yes. That are they are, uh, and it, and it's upsetting to see the destruction of one's child. Yeah. There's a it hurts. Um, if I haven't mentioned that to you before, the 11th chapter of Hosea. Hosea. If I could only keep five chapters in the Bible, I think that would be one of them. Uh, that's the one that starts out, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you're reading that in Matthew, that's Jesus, right? If you keep reading in Hosea, that child is a brat. That child is disobedient. A child that goes off on its own and rebels. And as you read through chapter 11 of Hosea, you can see God as almost kind of a tevya God from Fiddler on the Roof. On the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, God torn between God's own passionate love for this child that God cannot give up on and God's awareness that consequences have to play out. That's, that's God's wrath is all wrapped up in that. I think there's a component of betrayal of the mutuality of the relationship. That was the word I was looking for earlier, mutuality. Thank you. There's a betrayal of the mutuality. Yeah. There's a very small word here that is very important. That's the word yet in verse 27. Yet I will not make a full end. By the way, there's part of um, uh, Genesis 9, God's commitment, utter commitment to this broken world. Yet, in spite of whatever consequences need to play out, I will not make a full end. I will not give up on this world. Well, in Genesis 1, the simple phrase, and God saw that it was good. He didn't just keep throwing mud together and seeing where it was going to land. After that piece of creation, he said, and it was good. It is good. And that never, that declaration of God in Genesis 1 and 2, it is very good, is never canceled. God still sees this as good. Um, God's wrath, um, it's Abraham Heschel. Abraham Heschel has an entire chapter in his book on the prophets about the wrath of God. It's marvelous. It does go in circles, but it's marvelous. It is, and for, for Heschel, wrath is God's broken-hearted love. Wrath is God's broken-hearted love. And one way to feel that is if you watch someone else trying to abuse your child, what do you feel? Do you walk up and just say, I'm a Christian and I don't think you should do that, thank you. Um, but I'll forgive you if you do. You feel wrath. That's, 
welcome. One of my favorite wrath passages is Mark chapter 3, where Jesus comes into the synagogue, and you can see that the, everybody's, that the religious leaders have things stacked against him. There's this guy with the withered hand. It's Sabbath, and they're watching to see, will Jesus heal the guy? He's got a withered hand. He doesn't have, it's not an emergency. That can happen tomorrow. It doesn't matter. And Jesus looks around and asks them, so what's the Sabbath all about? Is, it, is a Sabbath a time to do good or to do, to, to do evil? To do harm or, to, or to, do, to, do, to do healing? And they have no answer for him. And he looks upon them with wrath, with anger, because of the hardness of their heart. Because here is a broken, vulnerable person. And they don't care. And Jesus wonderfully heals him without doing anything, which is all the more fun. There's a glimpse of what the wrath of God is about in the person of Jesus, God's broken-hearted love for the vulnerable, for the broken, for the whole earth. I think playing out of the consequences is what wrath is. Um, and wrath is in the Bible is always in service of God's promises and God's love. It's never an end in itself. I've, um, I've put on there this Day of the Lord trajectory. I'm going to skip that whole section. I did it Holden also. Um, if you're interested in exploring more the language of the Day of Wrath, of the Day of the Day of the Lord, it grows throughout Scripture from the Amos passage throughout other prophets, and the imagery builds up until you're getting to talk about the great and terrible Day of the Lord, and it moves from any day when God intervenes to the great day when God intervenes. And so it moves eschatologically, apocalyptically, toward the end. Right below that on the page, I've listed three movements from a prophet, prophetic to apocalyptic. In prophetic thinking, prophetic understanding, God is involved in this messy world. And not in clear lines, but God is involved. God's hands are involved all over the place, shifting things for the health of everyone. Um, in extreme times, when Isaiah 6, when things have to reach rock bottom, when Israel, for example, is so addicted to its monarchy and power that there's no longer any solution except for that monarchy to be to fall apart and be, be overcome. Now that's, that's, I see that as kind of prophetic in extreme, where God has to step back and say, I have to let this happen. And then apocalyptic. Book of Daniel, Book of Revelation, others like that. In apocalyptic thinking, it doesn't look like God's in control anymore. It looks like this whole world has gone to the devil, and it's in the hands of evil powers. Biblical apocalyptic, of course, God's always there and always in control. But apocalyptic language is there for times when it feels like everything has gone, gone down the tubes. I think it's no accident that instead of comfortable Americans trying to interpret the book of Revelation, the ones who really understood the book of Revelation were faithful Christians under Nazi Germany. They didn't have to interpret anything. They simply read it and they heard the message. That's what apocalyptic is for. I want to move to Isaiah's apocalypse. It's an interesting set of chapters. Isaiah 24 through 27. Uh, scholars have called this Isaiah's little apocalypse. 
Uh, these four chapters, I've, I put down there, it's a tale of two cities. Whoops. That um, running throughout these chapters, there are two cities. And they're emblematic, they're images. One of them is called the city of chaos, which is an interesting term in itself. The city of uncreation. It's also called the city of the fortified city, or the lofty city, or the alien city. There's this enemy, this, this, this overpowering monster city that Israel is, God's people are dealing with. And it's never named in these chapters. What does that mean for you in the scripture when something's not named? means that this verse can be used again and again and again and again. Bingo. This verse can be used again and again and again. Fill in the blanks. Who is the empire city? Who is the monster city right now? It's other situation and you can, it fits all over the place. Including for some parts of the world. America might be that monster city. Uh, we don't want to hear that, but fill in the blanks. Whatever fits. The other city is named as Mount Zion in one place, and otherwise is called the city of faith, the city of trust. Those are the two cities. This tale of two cities that we are all living between all the time. Now, as you go through this, these four chapters, the first chapter, 24, is uh, a picture of what looks like worldwide desolation. First half, two-thirds of that chapter, it looks like end of the world that God's destroying everything. It's all gone until you get further on, and it's not quite all gone. God's still doing stuff in the world. But, okay, that's an emblem. It's not end of the world, it's, but it's destruction. Chapter 25, Worldwide Promise. And that's where you get that marvelous passage. On this mountain, uh, the Lord had, well, set a feast for all peoples, a feast of fine wines and rich food for all peoples. God will take away the shroud that is over all peoples. God will take away death forever. Um, and on this mountain, it would be said, this is our God, and we've waited for, for God. This, pro this, this promise of universal restoration and banquet and party and wholeness and healing. That's chapter 25. Chapter 26 is a lament. We're in the middle of things. Things aren't at the end yet. We're not at the goal. And in the middle of that, um, we cry out. And it's one of the most honest laments, I think, in the whole Bible. These are some of my favorite verses. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but we acknowledge your name alone. Have you ever felt that? O Lord, other powers have been ruling over us and controlling us. Your name is the only one we'll name. You are the one we trust. Almost despairing verse. The dead do not live. Their shades do not rise. It's all over when it's all over. A few verses later, like a woman with child, one of the pretty regular images in the prophets is the, the childbearing, the woman bearing, going through the going through the labor pains and all the process now, but the end result is going to be this new birth, not this one. Like a woman with child who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she's near her time, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed, but we gave birth only to wind. We've won no victories. No one is born to inhabit the world. God, we've been going through all of this suffering with promise in mind, 
and nothing has come of it. I think it's a really honest declaration of where we are sometimes and how it feels. Then God steps in. Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. Dwellers of the earth, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a radiant dew, and the earth will give birth to those long dead. There is promise and life beyond everything that's most horrible that you see. And now, in the meantime, wait. And after that, the Lord with cruel and great strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and God will kill the dragons in the sea. That's a whole story in itself. In all of this, um, what we're seeing in the prophets is God involved in this bloody, painful business of life and history. God caring above all for the vulnerable, for those who are being crushed in the whole process. God calling out for justice. God seeking to continue to recreate God's people as a force for God to be at work with in the world. Um, all of that is what the prophets are all about. And then, in the meantime, laying back the truth of where we are and holding out God's vision of where this will yet go. Any last word you'd like to say before we quit? It is amazing the Jews have survived. It's amazing the Jews have survived. I mean, if you think about it, and they have maintained their their identity and all the travails they've gone through and the times they've been pushed here, pushed there. I think if, if they hadn't had God's special guidance, they would have disappeared long ago. But I mean, they certainly have been just really, really had a lot of hardships and troubles and they're right in the middle of it again. Mm. And perpetrators as well as victims at the oh, same yes. time. Oh yes, I would agree. Phil. I, I, uh, what I fear today are those who feel they can bring about participating, be the instruments of the day of the Lord. The willingness uh, uh, think the way to do it is get our people who think like us, the elected in all levels of government, and, and then we, we are going to make things right. The arrogance of thinking that we can we can make God's word, God's world work. Okay. Um, may, may I add a thought, Pastor Mark? If you read the, the early books of the Bible, the frequently see what I would call a saving, saving remnant. Noah is the saving remnant. Um, Moses is the saving remnant. But it suggests that those early events suggest that out of chaos, we're not going to have everybody survive. Rather, we're going to have uh, a percentage survive. So as we look at what you've talked about today, and we think of the the hope, I guess I would say, that all of this is going to come out well. Should we apply that notion of the saving remnant here? Well, that just opens up another hour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is, uh, all, all, all I'll note is that you, you called the, called forth the tension of remnant.
and there is a sense in which there's a, this kind of remnant piece that's narrowing down, running throughout the story, until it finally focuses in one person, which is Jesus, and then bursts back out again. Uh, but that's all that stands in tension, and there's and that's the case. There are always going to be um, a handful that really are attending to this and, and caring for this and longing for this, and God's promise and intention is universal. And those two things stand in tension in Scripture all the time. Okay, next time, what if it's not all about us? A lovely topic. <laughs> though the earth shall rage, though the mountains tremble, though the waters rage, you God are here. Though Job. <laughs>